grab a seat. Uh, well, welcome to St. Pete's. Uh, my name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team. Uh, and if we haven't met, it's, it's wonderful to, to be here with you today. I'm getting the volume about down just a touch. Thanks, Jameson and Dan. Um, as they fix my mic, uh, I, I've reached that stage in my life where I have to start seeing a physiotherapist. Anyone else? Don't be ashamed. I'm, I'm doing, outing myself. Uh, I've had some pretty bad back pain lately, uh, and so I've been going to see a physio for the last number of weeks. And when I first went in, they were trying to figure out what was going on with my back. And after some initial assessment, they started trying to gently align my spine, which was kind of weird, and then not so gently trying to massage my muscles, which really hurt. And at first, they, they couldn't get anything to move. Apparently, my back was on lockdown, and everything was clenched and seized up and tight. Nothing was moving, and no matter what they did, they couldn't get anything to move. And now, lying there on, on the little bed thing, that was not a very comforting thing to, to hear them say to me. Uh, apparently, it was some kind of defense mechanism in my body. Because of the pain in my back, my body had jumped into action to prevent any further movement so that I couldn't end up in any further pain, which I guess is kind of a nice thing. My, my body was doing a healthy thing. But I was stuck. It was a normal reaction, but I was stuck in this pain. And as I was lying there, they, they said to me, Rob, can you just take a breath for me? So I took a breath. That's it. Let yourself relax. Now take another deep breath. And as I took those deep breaths, my body was able to rest and settle. And the muscles in my back began to release that tension that had been keeping my back in such tight, unmovable pain. And my path to healing and recovery from my back begins with taking some deep breaths and being able to rest. Right now as a church, we're taking some deep breaths together. Two weeks ago, we had a farewell service for the Stern family. And as the founders of our church followed Jesus into a new season, we're finding that we are, as a church are also in the midst of a season of change and, and transition. And maybe there are some other areas in your own life right now where you're feeling a season of change and transition. And perhaps you're feeling uncertain about how things are going to turn out for you. And the feelings of uncertainty and change, we can have this tendency to begin to seize up as we try and hold on to those things from the past. It's a way of trying to protect ourselves from the pain of change and discomfort. And in the midst of those feelings, Jesus invites us to come and take a breath, to take a deep breath and to rest in him, to begin that path of recovery so that we can move forward with him into what he's got in store for us. Together as a church, we've started a journey going through the book of Philippians. And on this first part of our journey, it's kind of like a sub-series, we're talking about stumbling towards grace. As we take these deep breaths together, we're coming to rest in the hands of the God who made all things and who is saving and redeeming all things. We're resting in him as he speaks his word over us. And over the past few weeks, as we've been getting ready for this series and just getting ready to go through Philippians, I've been really struck by the fact that Paul wrote this church, wrote, wrote this letter to a church that was turning 10 years old. And for those of you who don't know, St. Peter's is turning 10 this year. November will be our 10-year anniversary. And so it just seems to me like there's something timely for us in listening to this letter. A letter to a 10-year-old church now being read by another church that's turning 10. 
This morning, we're coming to take a deep breath and sit together in these words from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up or turn it on. Um, and everything will also be on the screen behind me if your phone stopped working. Uh, beginning in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. There's a lot in this passage. Uh, these few verses are really at the heart and core of this letter Paul wrote in Philippians. And in these words, there's actually an invitation for us to come and to rest in Jesus as we continue to learn what it means together to stumble towards grace. And so what I want to do this morning is really to, to focus on verse 27, that first verse there, and to unpack it. And as we do, I want to look at three things. I want to look at whatever happens and what he means by that. I want to look at worthy of the gospel. And then what then? What do we do with this? So let's take a deep breath together. Together. It's a fun noise. Breathe out if you haven't yet. And let's begin with this first part. That's really fun to hear a whole room just breathing like that, by the way. I've never heard that before, so thank you. Verse 27 Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, no matter how things turn out. Why does Paul say that? What's going on here? Now, this requires a little bit of context, both about why Paul wrote this letter in the first place, and also a little bit of context about what he's just written before we ever get to verse 27. Uh, so just quickly, let's just talk about this letter and why Paul wrote it. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Philippi, uh, to people who he knew and loved really deeply. This letter is often called his letter of joy, and if you read through the whole thing, it's just kind of dripping with joy from the pages. You see, Paul really loved the Christians in Philippi. He had planted this, this church in the city 10 years beforehand. And after he had left the city to continue in his ministry, the church continued to stay in touch with him. And they wanted to support him whenever they could. They often helped to fund his ministry as he traveled around the world trying to preach and teach the gospel. And they wanted to keep in touch with him to hear just what he was up to and what was going on in his life and how they could pray for him and support him. And over those 10 years, the Christians in Philippi had gone through some stuff together. There's a lot that can happen in 10 years. And they'd been around the block. And in ways that we can't even begin to truly comprehend and understand, they had experienced the cost and hardship of following Jesus. They were struggling in their workplace because of their allegiance to Jesus. And some of them were losing their clients because their clients were growing suspicious about this weird faith that they had. Others were experiencing verbal and physical abuse, and, and some of them had even probably been put in prison because of what they held to believe as true about Jesus and about the world. And certainly all of them were feeling some kind of discomfort because they weren't participating in the cultural events and religious beliefs of their city and society. They knew hardship and difficulty. They were experiencing conflict from 
from outside the church, but, but also from within. And in fact, later in this letter, Paul will write and plead with two people to be reconciled with each other in this church. They'd been around the block, and they knew what it was like to walk with a limp. But after 10 years, they were still there. They were still there trying to follow Jesus in a city that wanted nothing to do with him. And Paul started writing this letter to them. As he did this, he knew that they were facing these challenges. And they also knew that he was facing his own challenges too. They knew that he was in prison in Rome. And he was hoping and longing to come visit them as soon as he could get out of prison. He would come to them. And so right before our passage, he actually explains how he desires to come and see them again. In verse 25, he writes, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. He wants to come see them again. He wants to come be with them to encourage them. And right now, as he's in prison, he's writing them this letter to encourage them to keep going on in their faith, to keep pursuing after Jesus. He's encouraging them to pursue after Jesus after enduring so much over all these years. And then he says in verse 27, whatever happens. Now, have you ever had that moment where you've been getting excited planning some major event? Maybe it's a party or a wedding, a, a trip, and the excitement is running high, and, and then someone starts to change the conversation to talk about contingency planning. Right? Like, all of a sudden, they say, well, what if it rains? Or what if the flight gets canceled? Or what if that vendor doesn't follow through. And just that bubble just suddenly pops, right? That excitement hits a wall, and there's this sort of deflated feeling. You're like, wait, what? What are you talking about? I, I don't want to think about that. Whatever happens. Paul says, I want to come be with you, and I'm excited to come be with you, to come and encourage you in your faith. And whatever happens... Whatever happens, regardless of whether I can come or not. Paul really wanted to come be with them. But just spoiler alert, if you haven't finished reading the book of Acts for yourself, he never did manage to get back to them. He says, whatever happens, whether things go the way I want or not. And in our English translation here, actually, we miss some of the strength and the force of what it is Paul's saying. In the Greek, the word here is only. Only. So Paul's saying to this church, there's only one thing that matters. I want to come be with you only. The, the Bible scholar Gordon Fee explains it's like Paul's lifting a warning finger in the air. He's lifting this warning finger because he wants to get their attention. For all Paul's confidence that God will finish the saving work that he's begun in the lives of these people. Now how he'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He has a warning because in their present circumstances, there's all the potential for regress rather than progress. He sees that in the midst of their present circumstances, 10 years in, amidst all the hardships, difficulties, and changes, he sees that they could be at risk of taking their eyes off of what matters most. And so he says, whatever happens, only this. Because it doesn't matter what happens. Everything could go well or everything could go completely wrong. The circumstances do not change this one thing. According to Paul, there is one thing that remains constant and matters most. Regardless of how things turn out, 
one thing remains for this 10-year-old church to do. And so let's turn now to that second thing, this thing that Paul is making such a big deal about. In verse 27, we continue to read, whatever happens, only this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy. That's kind of a big word, isn't it? And and maybe it feels like a heavy or or burdensome thing to hear, too. If I were to ask you right now, like, how do you feel hearing this this idea of worthy of the gospel of Christ? Like, I don't think too many of us would say, oh, that actually makes me feel really relaxed. I can take a deep breath and breathe and rest in that right now. (laughs) Yeah. It's this kind of weighty sounding thing, right? Only this, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That that sounds like we're being told to to live and maintain this really high moral perfectionism kind of standard of living. But here's the thing. We're to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the gospel means good news. So if we're to live in a way that revolves around the gospel, then that means that we're to live in a way that revolves around good news, to live in light of good news. And if we're being taught to live in light of good news, then this cannot itself be a burdensome or heavy claim. And the light of good news means that there's something good and life-giving that's going to inform how we live, right? Are you tracking with me with that? Head nods. Because if we're meant to live in the light of good news, then there's something good for us about that way of living. So if we're going to live worthy of the gospel we first actually need to be really clear about that gospel of Jesus, about this good news. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in Corinthians, Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Christ died for our sins. The good news is that Jesus died for your sins. He died, was buried, and then he was raised to life. Jesus took away the stain of sin from your life and my life. He took upon himself the curse of sin and overcame sin and death and then was raised to life. The good news about Jesus is that he forgives you all of your sin. If you are in Jesus right now, if you are in Jesus, if you belong to him and follow him, if your allegiance is to Jesus, then you are no longer bound by the curse of sin and shame. You are free from sin and you are alive in Christ. And this, this is good news. Isn't it? Silence. This is good news. Thank you. You are no longer who you were. This is why Paul actually begins so many of his letters in the New Testament in in this really particular way. And and if you were here last week, you would have heard Phil talk about this. But I think it's actually really important, so I'm going to say it again. In in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, he begins... Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Jesus Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He says, to all God's holy people. To all God's saints, some other translations put it. Together with the overseers and the deacons, you know, those, those people who are leading your church. And it's so easy to skip over these intros, right? We just kind of gloss over it, like, oh, that's not important. But if Paul were to write a letter to us here at St. Pete's right now today, how would he begin that letter? What would he write? I'm pretty sure it would go something like, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, to, to all the saints at St. Peter's fireside, along with your pastors and your staff and leadership team. Grace and peace to you. So then what does that mean about you? What does Paul say about you? He's already taken care of the pastors, the staff, the leaders. He's saying that you are a saint. Do you hear that? Lucy, you're a saint. <laughs> Roll ahead and odd. Ruth Ann, you're a saint. Curtis, you're a saint. Alistair, you're called a saint by Jesus Christ. And maybe you hear that. You're like, I don't really feel like a saint. Maybe it feels uncomfortable for you to hear Jesus calls you a saint. Maybe you don't feel good enough to be a saint or devoted enough to Jesus to be a saint. But when has the gospel ever been about what you've done? When has following Jesus ever been about earning or deserving his love for you? We're saved by grace, not by merit. We're forgiven our sins out of love, not because we've outbalanced them with good deeds. We've been made holy ones, saints of heaven, solely because of what Jesus has done for us and what he's done for you. The good news about Jesus is that he calls you saint. He's saved you from your sins. He's clothed you with a white robe of righteousness and has raised you to stand before God in, in heaven, even, even now, as his saint. And this is good news. This is good news. Do, we, do you want to take some deep breaths quickly? That's kind of heavy, good. Let's take, let's take some deep breaths. My physio would really approve. And as you breathe in, breathe in this good news that Jesus died for your sins and now calls you saint. And as you breathe out, sink into this truth and rest in this love. If you need to do it again, do it one more time. In and out. If you are in Christ, then you are saved by the gospel of grace and Jesus calls you his saint. And so with that in mind, core, important piece in mind, let's come back to our passage. Because Paul says, whatever happens, only this, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of that gospel, of this good news. We can maybe instead say, only this, live your life according to the good news of Jesus. Or, this is what matters most, live your life in response to Jesus' grace. Or we could put it more simply, live your life stumbling towards grace. Stumbling towards the fact that you are a saint. Because remember, you are saved by grace, not merit, not what you've done. We aren't saved by doing good things. No. 
You are a saint because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and how because of his great love, he died to forgive you your sins. Every single one of us stumbles into his grace. And so living in a manner worthy of the good news of grace means we keep living by depending on this grace, by falling into this grace. We keep on stumbling towards grace. In the depths of our sin, Jesus picks us up and we stumble and we fall. And as we turn to him, he picks us back up. And raised to fullness of life, we, we go to take another step towards him. And then guess what? Because we're still under the effects of sin in our own lives, we, we stumble and we fall. And then we turn to him and we repent and he lifts us back up and raises us to fullness of life and we take another step. And we stumble and we fall and when we turn to him, he raises us back up. And we take another step and we stumble and we fall and he raises us back up. To live a life worthy of the gospel of grace means we keep stumbling towards this grace. We stumble, we fall, and grace picks us back up over and over again. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ doesn't mean trying to make yourself into a morally perfect human being. It means coming to the sober awareness of your deep, ongoing need for Jesus Christ to keep raising you up. It's literally stumbling towards grace. And just to clarify quickly, by that I don't mean we just give up seeking to live morally. No, don't hear this as an excuse to pursue or to give in to sin. Do not continue in sin that grace may abound. Instead, let grace abound so richly in your heart and in your life that your dependence upon Jesus begins to reshape your desires. Let grace be so rich in your life that you begin to long for walking and being in step with Jesus. Let your aim be stumbling towards grace. And so you let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only this. Conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only this. Keep stumbling towards that grace. Regardless of what happens. Whether things go the way you want or not. Only this. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and keep stumbling towards his grace. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we together keep stumbling towards this grace? I've taken like 20 minutes to go through one sentence. Um, so that doesn't bode super well for our time today because there's a lot left to get through and I think some of you want to go watch the games at 3.30. Uh, so I'm on track right now to finish, I think around three, so you're good. But as we keep going, Paul says, only this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So when we make our one and only thing stumbling towards grace, then the result is that we will stand firm in the Holy Spirit. But more than that, we, we live this way. We can keep stumbling towards grace together and by conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm in the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, we can get a little bit distracted because we start thinking about all the weird stuff that can come with the Holy Spirit, like tongues and prophecy. And I, I believe that that still happens. And as a church, we make space for that still. But standing firm in the Spirit is far more about clinging to the presence of God. It's more about clinging to the presence of God in your life. 
And, and this is something we do together. After all, the Holy Spirit is the basis of our unity. He's the key and he's the source of our unity together as the church. And this is really important. Our unity as Christians isn't based in a shared and common experience. Our unity isn't in a shared vision of how to live or how to be. Our unity isn't in agreeing on everything. It's not some sort of corporate groupthink. Those aren't Christian unity. To pursue those things is actually to pursue after conformity. And so that we're not united in, but instead conformed to. And the vision of the church is not conformity to something, it's, it's unity in something. Really, it's unity in someone. Unity in the Holy Spirit. And so then hopefully, if, if we're united in the Holy Spirit, then the result of that will be that we, we can come to have those shared experiences, and we can come to grow to have a shared common vision, and we can learn how to agree and to disagree in a way which, as we do that together, people look at us and they say, huh, you actually look a lot like your Christ. How beautiful would that be if people look at us disagreeing and say, you model Jesus as you disagree. But unity is not conformity. And so our pursuit cannot be the end goal of unity because that's the road to conformity. Our pursuit has to be the pursuit of the basis of that unity, which is the pursuit of the Holy Spirit. And put more tangibly and concretely, our pursuit is stumbling towards grace together so that we can stand firm in the Spirit. Paul's words to an ancient 10-year-old church were only this. Live as heaven's saints stumbling towards grace and, and press into and depend on the Holy Spirit, for then I will know that you are striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. He was saying to them, whether, whether I'm able to come visit you or not, whatever happens, if, if you are united in the Spirit and stumbling towards grace, then at least I will know, and I don't have to worry about you, because I'll be assured that you are pressing on together for the faith of the gospel. What happens when we stumble towards grace? Well, first of all, we will stand firm in the Holy Spirit together. And our dependence upon the grace of Jesus Christ unites us together in and through Christ with and by the Holy Spirit. So the way that our church can be united in a season of change and transition is by taking a deep breath and stumbling towards grace, resting and standing firm in the Holy Spirit. We won't be united by pursuing markers of conformity to a vision. We'll be united by pursuing the source of our unity, which is the dependence upon Christ and our fellowship together in the Spirit. When we stumble towards grace and make our only thing living in a manner worthy of the gospel, we will be united. But there's also a second thing that happens, and I really want to make sure that we see this together. Paul says only this, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then I will know that you stand firm in the, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, Paul goes on to talk about a lot of stuff after that, uh, that I just don't have time to get into today, unless you want to stay until three, and then we can go to the side room and do that. Um, and he goes on to talk about what happens to the people who oppose us, and he goes on to talk about Jesus' humility. And next week, Phil will talk about the humility of Jesus in chapter 2. But I want to skip ahead quickly, because this is all one unified thought that Paul has in this passage. And it begins here in verse 27 and 28, and it goes through. It's like he's done this massive sort of parenthetical aside, 
And he comes back to this topic again at the end of chapter 2. He comes back to this idea of striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And in verse 12, he writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Remember, he's saying, whether I can come to you or not, whatever happens, there's just this one thing. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Keep stumbling towards grace. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of grace. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That is, the Holy Spirit is at work in you to will and to act to fulfill that good purpose. And so among many other things, the Holy Spirit is working in you and in your life to help you keep walking in a manner worthy of this gospel as you stumble towards grace, and is also working in you and in me to unite us together in Christ. So he's kind of rehashed what he was just saying. And then he goes on to write in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. When we press into this faith we hold and share together, and when we work out our salvation together, with all that fear and trembling, as we stumble towards grace, we discover that God is working in our midst to fulfill his good purposes among us. And as he does that, did you see what happens? Do you see it? When that's what's happening in our midst, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. We will shine like stars in the sky. God's light shines in us, and it shines through us, so that all can see. There's a constellation of stars waiting, just waiting to shine in the night. It's the constellation of the fireside. It's the constellation that, when glimpsed amidst the night sky, will cause a countless number of people to gasp in awe and wonder, and they'll take a deep breath. When they see in, in their hearts, they will know, they'll see and witness that stunning beauty of God's handiwork in our own midst as stars shine brightly in the night sky. The thing is, a constellation requires more than just one star to shine, right? To appear as a constellation, we all need to shine together. We all need to stumble towards grace together. And we can all shine together because the light we display isn't our own light. It's the light of Christ in us. Remember, it's Jesus who makes us saints. People look to the stars to establish and decide their next steps. But what if instead they glimpsed the constellation of the fireside shining brightly with the light of Christ? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if instead of seeking to follow patterns of stars and planets, people sought instead to orient their lives around the light of Christ that they see shining in and through us? We don't make ourselves shine like stars. We shine like stars by clinging to the words of life. We shine like stars in the sky by clinging to Jesus, holding fast to who we are in him and continuing to stumble towards grace. And as we do that, just look around this room with me. Look around. This room is full of saints. The people you are looking at are saints together with you. Saints who stumbled into grace. 
this room as the constellation of stars in the sky. So whatever happens, whatever happens, hear only this today. Just as you stumbled into grace and were made a saint by the gospel of Jesus Christ, so continue stumbling towards this grace, standing firm together in the spirit and clinging to the words of life. Let us stumble together towards grace in a manner worthy of the good news of grace that we have received, knowing that as we do, we are united together in the Holy Spirit and the light of Jesus Christ will shine through us as we shine like stars in the sky. Let's take a deep breath and rest in this. And let's pray.